Well, if you haven't yet, it is good to, to turn or to open and follow along in our passage. So again, verses 43 to 51 will be our focus this morning. Um, and uh, we're returning, obviously, to our study in John's Gospel, which we've left off for a few weeks now. But as we do return here, we remind ourselves that uh, John's main priority for us as his readers is that after uh, reading through this Gospel, we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Jesus, we would have life in His name. And that's the purpose behind John's writing. He tells us that very plainly in chapter 20. So John the Apostle, his main concern is that the readers or hearers of this gospel, as it was read, that they would come to trust in Jesus and find the new life that can only come through Jesus. Uh, so believing in Jesus, that's the point. And uh, we saw this right away. Uh, because as we started in on the book, we saw how John almost immediately references this idea of believing in Jesus back in chapter, uh, or back in verse 12 of chapter 1, when we were told that for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus gave them the right to be children of God. Uh, so John starts immediately in his prologue to reference this notion of belief and trust in Jesus, um, because as we trust in Jesus, we're brought into God's redemption family. That's what he's getting right out front there in terms of his gospel record. Uh, so we've had this direct reference to the concept of belief already in this chapter. And belief hasn't just been referenced in chapter 1, but it's also been displayed, or at least the, the beginnings of belief have been displayed in, in, in a certain way to a certain degree. Because we've seen that through the witnessing ministry of John the Baptist, uh, there have been men like Peter and Andrew, for example, who have now started following Jesus. And then in the beginning of our passage today, we have... Philip, who begins to follow Jesus as well. So in a sense, we've already had some examples of, of at least people starting to believe in Jesus, although it's not until we're into chapter 2 and the miracle at the wedding uh, that we're actually told the disciples believed at that point. But, but, but it's starting to happen. Things are percolating. Uh, however, with all of that, uh, we, we, we've had these hints so far, but we haven't had an explicit case of belief yet in John chapter 1 until we get into our passage today. And as we get into our verses today in this section, we meet an individual named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is the first person in John's gospel to be explicitly referenced as a believing individual. Um, Jesus speaks this way in verse 50, addressing Nathaniel as one who's believing. So there's something unique for us here in these verses that we're looking at today in that we know John's priority for us as we read this gospel is to be believing in Jesus, to be trusting in Jesus as our Savior. And, and given that priority, there's something significant in that in verses 43 to 51, we have the very first direct case study, if you like. We have, we have the first directly referenced instance of believing uh, in, in John's gospel with regard to this individual named Nathaniel. So this is important, especially as we think about John's own priority as an author. He's, he's wanting us to believe in Jesus too. And, and, and so all this helps us see something of the significance of this particular passage in the gospel as a whole. The, the first instance of believing in Jesus is, is recorded here. Um, but, that, but that's only part of what helps sets the context for these verses because uh, to, to really place what's going on here in this passage, we actually have to expand out a bit. There's something more that we need to think about if we're, if we're really going to uh, get the full benefit of, of what's going on here from John's writing in this particular instance. And so we'll, we'll frame that, that bigger picture in this way. Um, 
one way we often find ourselves comforted is when we're able to normalize our experiences. Um, so there's a, there's a study done a few years ago at Yale, apparently. The New York Times ran an article about it. But, but the study found that people seek to normalize the things they go through in order to uh, receive a modicum of comfort while they're enduring different things. And they seek to normalize the things they go through um, by blending the notions of average and ideal. That, that's how we want to normalize things. So, so we take comfort knowing that our experiences are not uncommon. We're not weird. Uh, we want to know that what we go through is average on the one hand. And these experiences, we also like to see something of an ideal in them. So, so even if they're hard circumstances, these things we face, we, we go through uh, just about the way we would expect to go through them. There's an ideal represented there. And, and as the study mentioned, that's a comfort for us as people. We want to know that what we face and what we go through is, is regular. It's normal. It's to be expected. It's, it's average in some way. So my particular experience in this category, whatever it may be, is not outside the realms of, of human norms. And, and we can resonate with that description. Uh, we can think through this in multiple ways, but we just think about school starting. Either it just started for kids or it's going to start for you this next week. Um, and, and if you're sitting in math class and, and the rest of the students are understanding the math problem and you do not, that's a bad feeling. That's a very bad feeling. I personally can tell you that's a terrible feeling as I've experienced it many, many times. Right? Everybody else is getting the problem. They get what's going on. You don't get it. That's a bad feeling. However, if you're sitting in math class and nobody's understanding the problem and you're not understanding the problem either, how does that feel? That actually feels pretty good. Like at least we're all on the same page because my lack of math knowledge is normalized, right? Nobody's getting it. That makes me, that makes me actually feel quite a bit better about my own lack of, of capacity. Uh, so it makes us feel better knowing our experiences are within the range of normal, and that's not a bad thing. Whether we're talking about uh, struggles in math class or dynamics in parenting or conflicts in the workplace, it's encouraging to know that what we're going through is regular. In fact, a normalization in, in this way is so useful that the Apostle Paul actually references it when he speaks to the Corinthian church about temptations to sin. So Paul speaks about temptations to sin to the Corinthians, and he says to the Corinthians, and we know this, we've, we've heard it before, but he says, no temptation has seized you except that which is, and the Greek word there is anthropos. It's the word for human. So no temptation has seized you except that which is people-ish. It's human, right? Um, so Paul's speaking to, to, the, to the giving in to sin that's going on to Corinth, and on the one hand, he's rebuking them. Like, this is not, this is not something acceptable. But Paul's also simultaneously encouraging them by saying that the temptation you're facing, facing isn't like crazy out-of-this-world stuff. It's just the normal stuff we face as people following Jesus. Right? He normalizes it. And that normalization of aspects of our Christian lives, just like the normalization of all different aspects of life, uh, that, that comes as a great relief to us. It's very good to know that what I'm dealing with is not as weird or as strange as I feared. It's actually a comfort to know that my circumstances, while may, they may be difficult, right, they're not outside the range of normal. And as we think along those lines of normalization, that's actually something important that John helps us with in his gospel when it comes to this notion of believing in Jesus. John helps to normalize the experiences or the processes of coming to trust, even of continuing to trust and believe in Jesus. But he, he does this normalizing work throughout his gospel in a way that we might not at first expect. 
So, so in terms of normalizing what it looks like to, to come to believe in Jesus, John doesn't give us a bunch of instances of people believing in Jesus and his gospel and say, look at how similar they all are. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, see how they all share the exact same process, so your process should look just like this too. That's not what John does. Instead, he does quite the opposite. So, so John includes a wide variety of different individuals' experiences as they move forward in belief in Jesus. And instead of saying normal belief in Jesus is always going to look this way every time, instead what he does is he actually normalizes the diversity of experiences. You see? In other words, if your process, if your path of coming to Jesus seems really different than the path of the person sitting next to you, that's the normal we should expect. So, so, for example, here right at the beginning, Nathaniel's experience of believing in Jesus is quite different than Peter's experience of coming to believe in Jesus and his gospel, for instance. Or the royal official that we're going to meet in chapter 4, his experience uh, believing is far different than Joseph of Arimathea, who we meet in, in chapter 19. You see, what John does is he normalizes belief in Jesus by highlighting the different ways these people come to trust in Christ. What, what, what's normal about trusting in Christ is that your path to trusting in Christ will be very different than others around you. John normalizes uh, their not being normal, you see, which can be an extremely necessary encouragement to us as we seek to know Christ more, as we think about our own believing in Jesus. Because depending on our own history, uh, maybe you think of a few people you know, maybe people very important to you, and we can think about their own process of coming to believe in Jesus. And we can be discouraged because our own situation has seemed so very, very different. Look at my background compared to their background. Look at the things I've done or the things I haven't done compared to the things they've done or the things they haven't done. It's just so different. And then at that point, that little voice can start to creep in that says to us, Maybe you're not really cut out for this following Jesus business after all. I mean, I mean, what things have been like for you have been so abnormal. It's been so different for you than these other people who you've seen. Are you sure this believing business is really for you? But you see, to those kinds of doubting thoughts, John's gospel speaks to us and says, now wait just a second. One of the most normal things, one of the most average and ideal things about coming to believe in Jesus is how different all of our experiences are, right? It's, it's, it's not that there's not any sameness. We're not saying that. We're, we're coming to the same truth. We're engaged in the, in the same genuine repentance. We're called by the same Lord, quickened by the same Spirit, all of those things. There's sameness in that sense, and we'll even talk about some of the sameness today in this from this text. But the process of believing through this gospel, John's speaking to us and saying the only thing normalized about the whole thing is that it can't be normalized. So throughout this gospel, we meet different people with different backgrounds, with different processes. And John's saying to us, in effect, come find some encouragement in all this, not in how all these accounts of belief are exactly the same, but come see something of your own process in the variety of ways these people have come to trust in Jesus and be encouraged by the points at which you can identify and... If you can't identify, be encouraged by that too, because we're all different. So in John chapter 3, a highly respected, highly educated religious leader is considering what it means to trust in Jesus, a man who kept all the rules. 
And in John chapter 4, a religiously disrespected and outcast woman is considering what it means to trust in Jesus, a woman who broke all the rules. Nicodemus and the woman at the well couldn't be more opposite in everything about their process. What's normal about coming to believe in Jesus is that there is no normal. And in considering that, uh, in considering the variety, we, we find a great deal of encouragement, uh, even, even as our own diverse experiences here can be, can be further understood. And we, and we need encouragement in that from time to time. And so, as we, as we come to our passage today, we have the first, not the only, we have the first instance of believing in Jesus that we find in John's Gospel. There's going to be many others, many, many others that are quite different. We have the first instance of believing in Jesus. And, uh, and of course, as we, as we look at this, we'll discover that there's, there's important truth uh, for us to be able to rest in this morning. It involves this individual, Nathaniel, um, Nathaniel's experience of trusting in Jesus. And there's things we can be encouraged by. And again, if there's things that are different, we just recognize that that's quite frankly encouraging to us as well. Because that's exactly the kind of truth that John is laying out for us. So, uh, we'll look at the text uh, here we have this instance of believing. We'll call it that. Actually, we'll call it the first instance of believing. That'll be, that'll be a good heading for what's going on here. Um, and as we look at this passage, we're going to look at it in three parts. If, if you take notes, uh, that, that can be helpful. We were gone on vacation. We were in three, heard three different sermons. And I think two out of the three pastors gave people the outline from the beginning. And I thought, I usually forget to do that. Maybe I should be better about that. So I'll, I'll give you mine. Uh, Philip's witness to Nathaniel. Very creative, first point. Actually, if you want to, you could just write dull for point one. Right? Point two would be Nathaniel's initial response to Philip. Next to that, you could just write skeptical. You've got dull, skeptical, and then for the final one, it's about Jesus. You could just write, he knows me. Okay, that's, that's the third one. Um, so as things begin here, Philip's witness to Nathaniel, or we could just write dull there. Um, start out verses 43 to 46. If you look at that, we have Jesus going to the region of Galilee. Uh, and while things will end up centering on Nathanael here, we are first told about Philip. So in verse 43, we're told Jesus finds Philip and calls Philip to follow him. Uh, we know from places like Mark chapter 3, for example, that Philip becomes one of Jesus' main 12 disciples. So Philip will become part of that apostolic group of Jesus' uh, central discipleship group. Uh, here, here, so here Philip is called, and, and we're told that he has a connection with Andrew and Peter, who came to Christ in the last section. Uh, Philip and Andrew and Peter, they're all from the same hometown, verse 44 tells us. So there's a little bit there about Philip, but other than that detail, not much is said about him here. In fact, nothing else is really said about him here. However, it is interesting to note that Philip's mentioned three other times in John's Gospel, so in chapter 6, in chapter 12, and in chapter 14. You can go look at those sections for homework later if you want to. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, based on what we know about Philip from those other passages, let me just read you some different descriptions that scholars have given to Philip. Let's read you a few of them. First one, Leon Morris. One He says this, Philip is not a particularly resourceful man. Another scholar described Philip as often confused and misguided. Another says, Philip regularly... See this one's kind of mean. Philip regularly seems out of his element, and it's probable that he was of limited ability. Right? And, then, and, then one more, and then one more, he says that Philip is commonly in situations where he is out of his depth. Okay? 
And you can go read those passages and see that that's, that seems to be the case. So here, here Philip is called to follow Jesus. And, and when we put some other pieces together, we discover that Philip is, is not a particularly standout kind of guy. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time here just being really thankful that the kind of people Jesus calls are people like this, right? These are the kind of people Jesus uses, and that makes some of me comfortable. That, that's helpful to know, right? And we could spend a lot of time on that here. Philip's a very fruitful witness, ends up being an apostle. Glorious use here for a simple guy like Philip, right? But, but um, he, he, we have to see here, he, he's, just, he's just one who always seems to be a few steps behind what's going on with the rest of the group. Okay, that's Philip. So file that away for just a moment. We first meet Philip, called by Jesus. And the first recorded act of Philip in John's gospel is evangelism, which is glorious to see. But we're told Philip, he goes and he finds Nathaniel. And we're told that Philip told Nathaniel uh, that they found the one the scriptures speak about. So the law and the prophets, that's a way of referencing the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying the one the scriptures are pointing to, we found him. And then after getting a little blowback from Nathaniel, which we'll talk about there in a moment, Philip extends this invitation to Nathaniel to come and see for himself. Okay. So, so Philip, who we come to understand doesn't quite seem to be up to speed with what's going on most of the time. Here's Philip's response to Jesus' calling. He finds Nathaniel, tells him that they found the one the Bible talks about. And then instead of responding to Nathaniel's initial skepticism, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Instead of responding to that with a kind of philosophical polemic or a well-refined apologetic, probably neither of those Philip would be capable of. Instead of that, he just says, come and see, which is what Nathaniel will do. So now, for Nathaniel's own process of believing, think, think through how these things are starting for him. Uh, he's brought to Christ through Philip, who's not known for being particularly quick. But Philip finds him, tells him that they found the one the Bible speaks about and invites him to come and see. That's the process. So, so, so imagine, imagine if, if we can put ourselves in this place of, of having some of these initial witnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry. Imagine uh, them all in a room together giving their testimonies, maybe in a hotel conference room. A whole bunch of people come. We're all listening to their testimony. There they all are. You've got Andrew. You've got Peter. All, all, of these, all these people, there, they're there. And, and we're going to hear from them. Uh, they're going to recount their own process of believing. You know, the widow of Nain is there where, where Jesus raised her son from the dead. There's going to be all this wonderful stuff. We, we'd be so interested just to hear them recount how, how it all went. And, and then it gets to Nathaniel's turn. right? And he comes up to the front and the moderator asks him, you know, go ahead, Nathaniel. We'd like to hear now about how you first started considering Christ. Did it start with a miracle? Maybe did it start with a crisis in your life? Or did it start with an intellectual debate with a renowned rabbi? Right? How did it start? Nathaniel, walk us through it. And Nathaniel walks over and takes the mic and says, well, actually, it started with Philip. There'd be a few snickers in the crowd because we all know Philip. Oh, yeah, Philip. Uh, he just actually found me one day and told me that the one the Bible promises will come has come and I should come and see. And we can imagine the moderator trying to get a little more information out of Nathaniel, more juicy details. But no, that, that's, that's pretty much it, Nathaniel. That's how it started. Someone I knew told me the one the Bible talks about is here, and I should go and see him. That's my testimony. It's not a very exciting story as things begin. It's actually really, it's dull. It's plain. Nathaniel is directed to Christ from the Bible by a man who history records was no Tim Keller. I remember Alistair Begg telling the story one time of 
preaching at an event when he was early on in his pastoral ministry. Uh, and in the course of his talks that he was giving at, at this, in the course of his sermons, he mentioned that he was raised in a Christian home and heard the gospel from an early age, trusted in Jesus very young. And then he made this comment in his talk. He said, and I wish I had a more exciting testimony. And, and after the talk, Alistair said that an old man came up to him and said, don't ever speak like that again. You know, of course, after a sermon, you wonder what, okay, which part, right? How much, what all have I said that has been offensive? Who knows? Um, so, so, you know, of course, that was shocking to hear, don't ever speak like that again. Uh, Alistair asked him what he means. And the old man went on to say that boring testimonies are a great grace from God and he needed to not regret his. And Alistair spoke about how that, how that had such a profound impact upon him. His testimony was boring, but that's not something to regret. It's actually something he needed to be very thankful for. And maybe that's something that's helpful in your own process. Nathaniel's testimony. Through John's gospel, we're going to have all kinds of exciting testimonies. John picks a boring one to start with. Nathaniel's testimony. It'll have more parts, but it, but it certainly starts in kind of a dull way here. And you may resonate with that, a relatively dull testimony. And remember, John wants us to know that while we're all believing in the same Jesus, our processes are going to be quite different, and, a dull, and dull is the way our process can look sometimes. Right? And that's not a bad thing. That's a normalized thing, and actually that's something to be quite thankful for. I know a number of your stories. Some of them are very exciting, and some of them, quite frankly, are pretty boring. Mine's boring. Right? And, that's, and that's part of the range of normal. And we can be thankful for that. So things start here with Philip's witness to Nathaniel. And it's dull testimony. It's just, it's just fairly dull. And then, if we keep going, we also need to see something about Nathaniel's first response to Philip. Um, what's Nathaniel's initial reaction to all this? And this is where we have that word skeptical. So we go from dull to skeptical. Um, Nathaniel's response is, 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 his initial response is skeptical. And even that's not very exciting, is it? Because anger would have been exciting. Ar starting to argue or debate with, with Philip would have been exciting. Uh, but Nathaniel's just skeptical. Actually, he's skeptical even with a dose of local town rivalry thrown in there. So Philip says, we found the one promised in the law and the prophets. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Philip, who we actually learn later, is from another town in the Galilee region called Cana, right? Uh, a, a town in Nazareth. Um, or, excuse me, Nathaniel is, is, is from there. Nathaniel is, is skeptical in response to this, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So we have this uh, rival town thing going on probably in Galilee. Uh, Nazareth is often referred to in kind of negative ways in, in different sources. Um, but, but with that, Nathaniel is clearly sensing, uh, sensitive to the coming of, of the Messiah, even in that his snarky comment still includes the fact that he's thinking about the Messiah coming as a good thing, right? Can anything good He's saying that genuinely. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he's sensitive to the goodness of Jesus' coming. But at the same time, he's clearly skeptical. Like really with that city, is anything like that going to come out of there? And while, while we might take that skepticism as a negative, it is noteworthy that, that in the very next section, Jesus himself actually commends Nathaniel's character, right? which is good for us to see. Because sometimes we can view skepticism, either skepticism that rises in our own hearts or skepticism that we encounter in others as we speak about Christ, uh, we can view the skepticism as a bad thing in the process of believing. Right? But, but that's not always the case. 
It can be if the skepticism is sourced in a persistently hard heart, but it's not always the case. With regard to Nathaniel here, Jesus will speak about him uh, in terms of being a man in whom there is no deceit. So Nathaniel, he's just a very straightforward person. And his skepticism reflects that. One commentator put it this way. He said, Nathaniel's not one looking to get caught up in something. So Nathaniel's a realist. He's not a sensationalist, if we could use those words. And to hear about the person of Christ, uh, instead of just, just jumping on the excitement bandwagon, instead he's just a bit, he's, he's rightly critical. He's, he's, he's not going to be overly excited just because Philip is excited. He's a little reticent. And again, we can be encouraged by this as we reflect on our own processes or the, or the processes even of others who maybe we're witnessing to at the moment with regard to Jesus. Maybe, maybe whether it's your own reticence or the skepticism of others, uh, there, there, there's something that we can take from this that encourages us in what would otherwise seem to be contextually negative. You know, we speak to our friend about Jesus and instead of excitement, there's reserve. Maybe that's how we felt at times in our own Christian faith. There's this hesitation. There's a, there's a period of being not quite sure this whole thing is making sense. But we can see from a situation like this that a response like that is not foreign to the process of coming to believe in Jesus at all. In fact, in fact, it might even be a positive reflection of an honest and careful heart like what Jesus commends in Nathaniel here. So that's something helpful for us to see. Nathaniel's skeptical response it might be a little jarring at first, but it's not a bad thing. Uh, it can sometimes be part of the believing process, and that's good. Paul tells us, doesn't he test all things, hold fast to what is true? And probably many of us can think back over the course of our own Christian experiences in churches and with others, where there have been many professions of belief in Jesus that are sourced in sensationalism and often prove to flame out. And at the same time, there have been those other instances of belief that have seemed a little slower, a little a little a little slower than we would have liked to see, a little more thought out, a little critical at times, but there they are still going along in the Christian way because they're taking the time to think these things through. Skepticism is okay. So we have that here. We have Philip's witness. We have that, the dullness there. We have Nathaniel's initial more skeptical response. And then lastly, we have Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus. Uh, this is verse 47 to 50. Uh, Jesus, he sees that Jesus knows him. There's this singing. That's going on there. Um, so, so if you look at the text there, Philip has said, come and see. And in verse 47, we read how Jesus sees Nathanael coming. And Jesus makes this comment, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's a bit of a play on words here uh, in reference to the life of Jacob. We see, And we see the Jacob reference in what Jesus says about the heavens opening in the last verse too. So there's some imagery going on here that might take us far beyond lunch to unpack in a, in a long way. So we will just be a little more brief with it. You can study it out on your own. But we remember the story of Jacob, who the Lord later renamed Israel. Right? And, and Jacob started out as a deceiver, didn't he? That was what Jacob was known for. Uh, John actually uses the same Greek word here for deceit that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Jacob's story. It's a word for deceiver. So here Jesus is saying from the start, Things are not that way with Nathaniel. Things are different with Nathaniel. He's not like Jacob was at first. Nathaniel's not seeking to gain something for himself through underhanded methods like Jacob did in his story. Nathaniel's not seeking to do that as he comes to Jesus, which is no small thing because we see the crowd's posture toward Jesus all through the Gospels. The crowds are not really interested in the person of Jesus. They're, inter they're interested merely in the product of Jesus. What can I get from him? What can I get from him? What can he give to me? Right? 
But Nathaniel, he's not interested in, 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 a, in coming at things in a kind of deceitful, underhanded way. No, Jesus sees his heart and he knows that his interest is genuine. Nathaniel's like Jacob after the Lord had work on, worked on him and then named him Israel. So actually, we could wonder at the translation a little bit here. You've got the word truly that's in there. Uh, so, so that truly could actually be uh, attached to the, to the true Israelite. He's like a, a truly renewed kind of Jacob sort of figure. Here's somebody who's not deceitful, but is trusting. And so Jesus says this about Nathaniel. Here's an Israelite, or here's a true Israelite, I might say, in whom there's no deceit. Um, and then in keeping with the fact that Nathaniel is very straightforward, it's interesting that Nathaniel doesn't blush or brush off the compliment from Jesus. And what would you say if Jesus came up and gave you a compliment? I, oh, no, 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 that's not me. Nathaniel just owns it. He just says, how do you know me? Right? What you've said about me is accurate. What you've said about Basically, Nathaniel's acknowledging the accuracy of Jesus' statement in his response. That I'm a straightforward person. Jesus somehow knows that. So he asked Jesus, how do you know me? How do you know that about me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Which actually doesn't really mean that much to us. Um, Jesus saw Nathaniel sitting somewhere at some point before Philip came along. And told Nathaniel that Jesus was the Messiah and he should come and see. That, that doesn't seem like much of an answer to the question Nathaniel asked. How do you know me? Oh, Jesus, you saw me sitting under a tree. Okay. Right? If, you ever, if, you, if, you'd, uh, if you'd never met Jason before. And you were going to say something very complimentary about Jason's character. And he asked how in the world you knew that. And you said, oh, I just drove by. I saw you sitting on the porch the other day. That wouldn't be much of an answer. And he might think you're a little creepy. Right? However, Jesus' answer has this strangely profound impact on Nathaniel because Nathaniel responds with this extremely high confession of who Jesus is. I mean, we're not even out of John chapter 1 yet. This extraordinary confession of who Jesus is. So verse 49, he hears this thing about the tree and he says, Rabbi, so teacher I'm now following and yielding to, right? Rabbi, uh, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Now, to the degree that Nathaniel understood the significance and bigness of that entire statement, it's hard to know. But, but, but thinking about the Old Testament that Philip had already referenced, we know Nathaniel has some connection with an understanding of the Old Testament. In places like Psalm 2, you have God's Son who's God's King, and the world is called to come and yield to Him. Um, so Nathaniel's response to Jesus, in a sense, is, is, is very Psalm 2-ish. I will yield to you. You are the Son of God. You are the anointed King. He's, he's confessing the long-promised messiahship of jesus huge confession what a response and why this response all jesus said was i know you because i saw you earlier under a tree so why such a huge response from nathaniel well as we look at the text we are just plainly not told what jesus says about seeing why what jesus says about seeing nathaniel affected him so much we don't know we could guess we could even take educated guesses. We could talk about how in Hebrew literature, a fig tree is, is often symbolic of home, a place of rest, a place of private prayer. And maybe Jesus is referencing uh, a time of, of private devotion that, 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 that Nathaniel had recently where his heart was uniquely quickened and somehow he knows Jesus knows that we could, we could speculate on things like that. Maybe that's there. Right? But John doesn't tell us. 
The text just doesn't say why this affected why this affected Nathaniel so much, which is actually very tactful on John the gospel writer's part to not tell us because it forces us to pay attention to the main thing that's going on here between Nathaniel and Jesus. And that main thing is that Nathaniel was ultimately affected in his belief in Jesus because he saw that Jesus knew him. Or we could say it the other way. He knew that Jesus saw him. Right? That's what's focused on here. Jesus knew what Nathaniel was like. He knew what Nathaniel was doing. He saw Nathaniel for who he was. Jesus saw Nathaniel in a unique way that Nathaniel understood to be unique enough that, that this Jesus must be the one I've been waiting for. Whatever this interaction was about, it was enough to profoundly affect him in that way. Here's the one who knows me. Like only God's king could know me. And while we all have various experiences in coming to believe in Jesus, in this, we do actually find something that's truly common. However we get there, whatever our process is, whether it's boring or quite exciting or somewhere in between, we do get to a place where we discover this, this Jesus sees us. For us, that happens often through the ministry of the word. Oftentimes, whether it's through the preaching or our own Bible study, we realize that Christ, who is at the center of this book, speaks through his word and proves that he knows me intimately. And what does that do to us? Well, it draws us out in belief. The way his word searches my heart and convicts me, only he could know that. And then the way his word searches my heart and brings the solace and comfort and meaning and clarity and sustaining truth that I need in such an individually unique way for me. Who else could this be but God's promised Savior King? And we believe, we believe. I would imagine to some degree that this element is, is a common part of all our various paths to belief. Through the scriptures, you have come to feel the genuine, weighty, and grace-filled reality that I am known by Jesus. He knows what's going on in my heart. He knows the needs I have very much represented in my soul. And in response to that, whether it's skepticism at first or whatever else, ultimately you're softened and you come to trust. Our processes are all very unique, but this one is particularly common. This Jesus, I just can't escape the fact that he sees me, that he knows me. And for one who knows me and still calls me and promises me life, I, I will be trusting in him. In fact, it's that promise element, which is, which is part of what's here in the final interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel. They have this promise of greater things. You know, Nathaniel believes in Jesus because Jesus has proved to be the one who knows him. And, and Jesus says in verse 50, he says, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the tree? You'll see greater things than these. And then Jesus references something else in the story of Jacob, this instance where, where Jacob has the dream in Genesis 28 where the heavens are opened and, and you have uh, the angels are going up and down on a ladder between heaven and earth. Uh, Jesus is saying, in effect, you believe. Uh, because you see that I know you, Nathaniel, uh, but there's going to be so much more. Ultimately, it's not Jacob, uh, but it is through me uh, that the barrier between heaven and earth are going to be open. And in a sense, you'll see this taking place to a certain degree. Uh, even in Jesus' immediate ministry, Nathaniel will no doubt see uh, this taking place in the ministry of Jesus. The restorative healing heavenly power of Christ will be affected on people as they're restored to health, as they're restored from death to life. Jesus will speak heavenly new creation truth in his ministry on earth. And ultimately, Jesus himself will rise to resurrection glory, ascending with that promise of returning again after he's prepared 
a place for us. So, so heaven is opened to earth through the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to him, you're going to see, you're going to see expressions of that as, as, you, as you continue to follow me. You believe because I've shown you a little bit. And that's wonderful, but be encouraged. You're believing now, but even better things are coming. You'll, you'll see even better things. So within the diversity of our processes of believing, there is this element of commonality in this as well. And that's the truth that as we come through our process of believing now, we're believing in Jesus. But like Paul says, we only see in part. We're believing, but there's still struggle. We're believing, but there's still confusion. We're believing, but there's still pain and sorrow and the experience of weakness and darkness and all of these things. But we're believing, uh, resting in the fact that heaven has been opened to us through the work of Jesus Christ. His sustaining grace is ours day by day. That promise is assured to us. That resurrection, new creation, hope belongs to us even now as we wait. The heavens and the earth have been, have, heaven has been opened to earth through Jesus and we rest in that constant provision of his grace and mercy that extends in that way. And at the same time, we still look forward to the fullness of heavenly blessings that are open to us through Christ and what he's accomplished in his cross and resurrection. This is something that's common for us. In fact, there's a little clue here that John wants us to see the commonality because he actually switches in verse 50 from a singular you to a plural you. You all, you all will see better things than these, Jesus is saying. And that's important to consider. We believe before better things. That is common to all our processes in coming to believe in Christ. As we come to trust in Him, or maybe after we've been following Jesus for some time, we can start to wonder about the difficulties that persist. You know, the, the, the Jesus saw me under the tree lasts a while, but that might not be what can sustain us long term. And we might start to wonder at the hardships we keep facing, the wounds that still seem to be bleeding and are not healed. But, but here's something that's common to all believing in Jesus in this life, in that the fullness of what's promised to us in Christ is guaranteed now, but not experienced fully yet. We believe before better things. Those better things are sure, they're coming. The fullness of heavenly blessing Jesus obtained through his sacrifice on the cross, resurrection, glory, play, paying the curse of sin, all of those things, they're coming, uh, but we wait for them expectantly now. Uh, we don't have the fullness of all of that yet. So it is common to all our experiences of believing that, that we are believing before better things, and we take comfort in that. It's normal for us to be trusting in Christ and have things not whole and complete yet, uh, but still here we are trusting in the one who opens the way between heaven and earth because our future hope of glory is secured by him. In fact, we had a little bit of this in the last lyric of the song we sang uh, just before in the song, two, two songs uh, before the sermon, didn't we? Where we have the, the statement, I will wait until I see him. Though the twilight turns to night. I wonder if your twilight has turned to night recently. Though the twilight turns to night, for my hope is not defeated, it will greet his dawning light. Our hope will greet the dawning light of Christ when the fullness of all that he's promised is before us and we will see. So, so in these things, we can, we can find something of our own experience. Believing is a diverse process, not precisely the same for any of us, and that's a comfort to know. Here we have some dullness, here we have some skepticism, but here we also meet face-to-face -face the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that he's the one who not only knows us as we are now, but promises a future of better things because he's opened the way between earth and heaven. And in that we take great comfort. Let's pray together. 
So, Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that we be encouraged by it in our own processes, however diverse they may be. That we be encouraged that Jesus is the one who knows us and who calls us and who secures us and who not only promises us a future full of extraordinary heavenly glories, uh, but he's the one who has secured that future for us through what he's done on the cross. And we rest in that. We thank you that his love is expressed for us perfectly there. And we're thankful that we can know this truth through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.